The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible, what's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the law. That's Israel's five book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this second temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament. But what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. 
Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature, so what's in my Bible? So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years, and from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical books. Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I think I got it. But... How does a collection of books produced over a thousand years by all these different authors tell one unified story? Yeah, that's the question we'll address in our next video. Welcome to church. Great to have you here. That video was great, and there are 10 more videos that go on from this point that you can find through the church app, and I want to encourage you to find those and watch those throughout the week to get even more understanding about the Bible and how to read it. We're in this series called New Year, New Life, and we as a church believe that our mission is to reach people far from God so that they can experience new life in Jesus. And this new life that we experience in Jesus, it's not just a one-time moment of conversion where we're saved, but it's a lifelong process of following after Jesus and becoming more like him. And so we want to grow. This is a continual process and a journey that we're all on. Last couple of weeks, we've talked about prayer and how to pray. Um, I want to talk to you tonight about how important it is to read the Bible. And I think as Christians, we all know that. We've heard that before. The problem is... If we're being real, many Christians would say, I don't really know how. And so I want to talk to you about that tonight, how to read the Bible. Um, I want to encourage you as we're getting started, if you are not, get uh, ready and take notes. Um, Open up a phone, open up a notebook. I think that this message has some information in it that you'll benefit from and be able to go back and reference later. So I want to encourage you to take notes if you haven't heard this yet. Um, We're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 starting in verse 12. In this passage starts out with the Apostle Paul writing to his disciple Timothy, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus, giving him advice. And in this passage, he starts out with a warning. So starting in verse 12, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's start out with this. Why should I read the Bible? Well, I think all the answers we need are right in that passage that we just read. Why I should read the Bible? First, so that you can be saved. This passage tells us that the Bible is able to make you wise for salvation. 
And without the truth contained in this Bible, the good news that comes through Scripture, you will not discover, we cannot know how to be reconciled to God, forgiven of sin, and receive eternal life. So we become wise and learn that it's through Jesus and placing our faith in him that we're able to be saved. I believe that all of you want to be saved. Okay, everybody wants to be saved. This is how we're saved. The truth that comes through the word of God. Second, why you should read the Bible so that you won't be deceived. Paul talks about that there will be evildoers and imposters who are deceived and deceive. And there are many people who have been deceived by false teachers who lead people to follow false religions or ideologies or philosophies that ultimately cannot lead to eternal life. And in fact, the scary thing is that there are Christians who've already placed their faith in Jesus, who've been baptized, even in this church. But then because they didn't have enough understanding of the word of God, were vulnerable to being deceived, and they were deceived, led away from the truth into false teaching, new ageism, and things like that. So I don't want you to be deceived. You don't want to be deceived. And so that's why we need to read the word of God. Third, so that you can live your new life. This word of God is useful to equip you for every good work. It will provide for you everything that you need to know, all the wisdom that you need, the tools that you need to follow after Jesus and serve him. It's able to correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness. Um, this is so beneficial. And if you want to follow after Jesus and be like him, fulfilling the great commission, you need to know what is in the Bible. Do you agree that we need to read the Bible, everybody? Okay, so now that you know why you need to read it, let's talk about how to read the Bible. Now, this is going to be a different type of message than I've ever done um, or that I've ever heard, so I hope this will be beneficial to you and help you understand how to read the Bible better. I want to inspire you to read it and then assist you in this. I want to give you an assist so you can score reading the Bible. Here's five steps how to read the Bible. First, pray and ask for help. Start out before you read the Bible, take a moment and pause and pray to ask the Holy Spirit to help you so that as you read it, you can understand it. That is why the Holy Spirit is here. That's one of his job descriptions is to help you read the Bible and understand it. Jesus said in John 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So here's the thing. You cannot understand the Bible without the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, none of it will make sense because we are spiritually blind and we cannot see the truth until the Holy Spirit comes along and open our, opens our eyes. And then once he's done that, we've placed our faith in Jesus. He's the one who shines light on Scripture, illuminating it to the point that we can see it and understand the truth. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So here's the crazy thing. You can't understand Jesus until you place your faith in Jesus. And you will not understand the Bible until you are a Christian. Because without the Holy Spirit, this passage says you can't understand the things that come from the Spirit. The Word of God comes from the Spirit. So this is why your unsaved friends, your loved ones who don't know Jesus, sometimes they, they make fun of the things that you believe. They make fun of some of the things the Bible says because to them it seems like foolishness. But that's because they don't have the Holy Spirit to show them the truth. 
But the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. He allows us to see the truth, and that is key. That's why I want us to pray and ask him for help. Now, some of you in the room would say, but Pastor Ryan, I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit, and I still don't understand everything in the Bible. I just want to say, me too. Okay? You're not alone. I think there are some Christians who feel bad because they read the Bible and they don't understand it sometimes. Like, man, I must be a terrible Christian. I must not be very good at this because I, I, I don't understand all this. And I'm sure all the other Christians who read this book probably get it completely. But man, I feel so unenlightened here. Listen, that's not true. There, there is no human being walking and talking and breathing on this earth who understands everything in the Bible. You'll spend the rest of your life seeking after truth, and you still won't get every ounce of wisdom out of this book. But we're still called to pursue it and grow. And as you read it, you'll grow in understanding. The more you understand, the more you'll understand. You'll read things, and you'll be like, I don't really fully understand this, or I only understand a little bit of it. And then over time, you'll grow, and you'll learn, and you'll gain more understanding. And then you'll go back to those first passages that you read before, and you'll be like, I understand even more of this. I see things I never saw before. So continue on. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you, and he will help you grow in understanding. Do you believe that? Okay. Second, read a helpful translation. People ask this all the time. Hey, Pastor Ryan, which translation of the Bible should I read? And my answer to you is a helpful one. Read a helpful translation. Almost all translations are helpful, but just in different ways. There is nobody who's going to miss getting into heaven because they accidentally spent too much time reading the wrong translation of the Bible. It's true. I can promise you. There will be, in seriousness, people who miss getting into heaven because they read no translation of the Bible. And they were vulnerable to being deceived. So as long as you're reading something, you're going to be in good shape. So all English translations are translations of the original scriptures, the word of God that was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Up until the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church would only allow copies and uh, new editions of scripture to be um, translated into Latin. And they didn't want everyone to be able to read them because they feared that the common man would misinterpret them. So then in 1500, this guy, William Tyndall, rose up and he defied the Roman Catholic Church and said that he was going to make it his life's mission to translate the Bible into the common language that everyone could understand. He was arrested for this and he stood before the Pope and he told the Pope, if the Lord spares my life, I will cause the boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. So he made this his effort, but then he was arrested and he was burned at the stake for trying to translate the Bible into a common language. And one of the last things he said before he died was he prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And if you've ever read a King James version of the Bible, you know that God did that. So the King James version was finished in 1611 is considered the most influential book in the history of the world. There are some Christians who grew up reading the King James Version. Anybody here? Okay, you grew up hearing the King James Version in church, and you were probably or possibly taught that it was the best version. And then in recent years, there's this group of people that is very vocal about their opinion that the King James Version is the best. Some people even say it's the only holy version of the Bible. How do you think I feel about that? 
Some people think that because it's older, it's better. And that is not necessarily true. In fact, the opposite is probably true. Because since it was finished, even more ancient manuscripts have been discovered that allowed archaeologists and scholars to compare against what they had and then refine this English translation to be even more accurate. So the King James Version actually has some minor accuracy problems, nothing major, but some minor problems that have been corrected with some of the more modern translations that are up to date with all the historical and scholarly works. So the King James Version, for example, has an error in Numbers 23, verse 22, where it mistranslates the word for wild ox as unicorn. Okay, that's just because when they wrote it, they didn't understand ancient Hebrew as well as scholars do today. So when we talk about it getting more accurate, we're not talking about a major theological issue. It's not like one translation says Jesus is the son of God and another one says Jesus is the son of Todd. Like, oh, this whole time I thought he was the son of Todd. I was like, what's the big deal? No, he's the son of God. No, it's nothing like that. We're talking about going from 99.2% accurate to 99.9% accurate. So my personal feeling is that the King James Version is one of the least helpful translations because the language was last updated in 1769, which is 250 years ago. So it's one of the hardest translations for people today to understand because we don't typically talk like William Shakespeare in our everyday life. This is why the Mormons only let their people read the King James Version. Can I just get real for a second? Because they don't want their people to actually understand the Bible when they read it. Because if they actually understood what was in the Bible, they would realize all the rest of the stuff that the Mormon church is teaching is unbiblical. I'm going to move on because I get fired up about this. So there are different types of translations. And I want to say this. At Generation Church, we do not allow translation snobs. I think that all these translations are generally helpful, just in different ways. And there are actually some translation snobs. So if you encounter anyone being a snob about translations, you call them out in love. And you say, no translation snobbery. (laughs) I've heard people like, oh, what translation is that? Oh, that's not a good translation. It's like, we don't have problems as a church because people are reading the wrong translation. But because people don't read their Bible, period. Okay, so we just want people to read the Bible. And I want you to understand this. Um, No translation is perfect because language changes from generation to generation. And words leak meaning. That's why the language has to be updated so that we can make sure that we keep the original meaning that was written in the Hebrew and the Greek. So the language that we have it in, in English, will be adapted over time to keep the original meaning. Martin Luther, in fact, when he was translating the Bible into German, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, I must let go of the literal words so I can translate this scripture into the language that the German people use. That's the goal. That is the goal, that we would actually understand what the original language says. There is no such thing as a literal word-for-word English translation because the English language can't perfectly capture what the Hebrew and Greek language meant. Scholars just do their best to get us there, and they do a really, really good job. 
So Bible translations in English come about when dozens and even hundreds of scholars who have doctorate degrees in Hebrew and Greek spend years and years researching and studying ancient manuscripts, comparing them against each other, debating and figuring out the most accurate possible translation into English. So if you hear somebody say, that's not a good translation, they're probably not qualified to say that, (laughs) all right? And I just want to say this to translation snobs. If reading the Bible makes you more critical and judgmental and snobby, you're doing it wrong. Okay. So here are some of the different types of translations. There's the formal equivalence strategy for translation. And sometimes this is called word-for-word translating. Um, Like the New King James Version, the NASB, the ESV are word-for-word translations. Um, Sometimes the NIV is categorized in this way. Uh, these are translations which seek to maintain the form of the original language as closely as possible. These translations are very helpful for us when we're studying the Word of God deeply and trying to craft our theological and doctrinal positions where we need to have the most accurate language that we can get. The problem with these translations is sometimes it can be a little harder to understand. You might read them and really struggle to understand what it is you just read. The next type of translation is a dynamic equivalence translation, sometimes called thought for thought, like the New Living Translation, which is my favorite, the Contemporary English Version, uh, the New International Reader's Version, that NIRV uh, version, I want to point that out, really helpful for kids. It's what we use in kids' church. Um, It's good for anybody that has a learning disability who struggles to read. Very simple. You'll get all the important concepts. Um, Also the NIV. The NIV uses a mix of word for word and thought for thought in its translating style, which is why it's the number one Bible in America, because it's very helpful and all around beneficial. So the, the goal of word for word translations are to maintain the form of the original text. And the goal of thought for thought translations is to help us understand the original text. Then there's another type of translation called paraphrase, which the goal is to communicate the essence of what the scriptures say, like the Living Bible, uh, one's called the Passion Translation that just came out, which I think is really cool, or another one you've probably heard of, the Message Translation. And these help bring scripture to life. That is their purpose. Their purpose is not really to be your primary Bible, the only Bible you read, because they really paraphrase the original language. And if they're all you read, you might miss some important parts of what is taught in the Word of God. So I think about these translations like hot sauce. Okay? They're good to add flavor to your meal, but you don't want that to be the only thing you eat, or it won't really be good for you. So I want to do something kind of different. I want to show you some verses from the Bible in different translations and just compare them so you can kind of see a little bit of the difference um, in how they read and how you can understand what you're reading. Let's go to Proverbs 14, verse 23 in the King James Version. It says, In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. Who knows what penury means? All right, you get a gold star if you do. We'll go to the ESV. In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Okay, that makes a little more sense. Now look at the NIV. 
All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Okay, now we're getting it, right? If I work hard, I'm going to make a profit. If all I do is talk a big game, I'm going to be poor. And so you'll see how if you read an easier to understand translation, it's not that hard. Let's go to Exodus 16, verse 3, an Old, Old Testament passage. In the King James Version, it says, And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You read this, and it's like, ugh. I don't think I got quite all of that. Uh, let's look at the English Standard Version, the ESV. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, it's a little more modern, but still a little difficult. Well, let's look at the New Living Translation, the NLT. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate bread, all the bread we wanted, but now you have brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. Okay, you read this and it's like, I get it. They're complaining. (laughs) They're like, back in Egypt, we had it so good and we had all the food we wanted, but you brought us out here into the wilderness. We have no food. Like, were you trying to kill us? See, you can do this. You can read this and understand this. We'll go to one New Testament translation, uh, passage to translate. Uh, Colossians 2. Verses 9 through 10, here's the uh, Young's literal translation, maybe one of the most difficult to understand. Because in him doth tabernacle all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are in him made full, who is the head of all principality and authority. Amen. (laughs) Yes. Look at the King James Version. It's a little easier. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. If you read that in context, you could probably figure it out. Here's the New Living Translation. For in Christ lives all the fullness of, the, of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. I see. See, you can do this. You can read the Bible and understand it. Maybe you've just been looking at it in an unhelpful translation for you. People ask, which translation should I read? I think that's like asking, which diet should I follow? Whichever one you can stick with. Read a translation that can help you. Word for word translations. They're not necessarily better translations. The most helpful, the best translation for you is the one that you can read and understand. I oftentimes will use a simple translation like the New Living Translation when I'm preaching so that as I read it, you can read it with me and just understand it. If you grew up in a church where they taught out of the King James Version, what you would notice is the pastor would read the passage, and then he'd spend the next five to ten minutes just explaining the passage that you just read. I say, let's skip that part. You can read it in yourself, and then we'll move on to applying it to our lives and understanding the context in a greater way. So that's why I encourage people, when I'm just studying um, for a a sermon, I'll use a more word-for-word translation like the English Standard Version. If I'm reading on my own just to have time with God and just to soak it in, I'll use a New Living Translation because I don't want to think about what I'm reading. I just want to soak it in. So these different translations, I think, are one of the main reasons that people get tripped up and think that they can't read the Bible or they can't understand the Bible. Read a helpful translation. All right. Three. How should we read the Bible? Read it on purpose and regularly. P. 
People ask, where should I start reading the Bible? Well, generally, uh, in the Gospels is a good place to start, like the book of Mark or the book of John. And then I would recommend reading something like Romans or an epistle and then go back to the beginning and read Genesis. But you need a plan, okay? People, they oftentimes, they don't know where to start, and so they just pick it up like it's a novel, and they start at page one. They're like, oh, man, there's like a lot of... A lot of stuff here I don't really get. And then it's good for a little while until it gets real confusing. (laughs) Because this isn't a novel that's meant to be read like a novel. It's a collection of books arranged by type. And so if you read it from cover to cover, there's going to be times where it doesn't flow that well. It can become difficult to understand. Or you can do the the thing that a lot of Christians do when they decide they're going to read the Bible one day. They just kind of do one of these, like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, Hosea, let's go. Right? And that's better than nothing, but there's a better way. You need a plan, okay? So I'm going to email out to our church um, in the next couple of days Bible reading plans. So if you get my emails from the church, there will be different types of plans available to you uh, to use. If you don't get the church's emails, if they've been going to your spam box, or if you just don't care to read the emails I send, you need to fix yourself and stop hurting my feelings. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> so in the seat back pocket, in the chairs in front of you is a connect card, and, and I would ask you to just fill that out, put your name and your email address on that, put it in the offering at the end of service or the connection point in the lobby so that you can get in on this email and all my other really helpful, awesome emails. You need a plan. You need a plan that will help you to read the Bible. Joshua 1, verse 8 says, study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. So you need to make it regular. This word meditate, it, com- it carries the idea that you're constantly just chewing on it like a, like a piece of meat. And you're just soaking it in. You're just kind of repeating it to yourself. And, and you're thinking about it throughout the day. And that if you do this, the Bible says you'll succeed in all you do. So I want to give you different types of plans that you can follow. And these this plans will give you daily Bible reading sections. And you'll complete that day's reading. If you want, you can skip ahead. Um, if not, that's fine. If you miss a day on your plan, what should you do? Quit. No. (laughs) Pick back up where you left off. It's fine. You missed a day, just get back into it. Um, This is not a legalistic thing. We're not reading the Bible to try to earn God's love or to get a Christian merit badge for Bible reading. We're just reading this book because in it is life. And it helps us to be successful and equipped for everything that God is calling us to do. It is easier now than ever. You can download the Bible app on your phone for free. Uh, look in the app store for version or the Bible app. Download it. It's great. There are dozens and dozens of translations that you can switch between easily, take with you everywhere you go. You can listen to the audio version of the Bible through this app for free. And if you don't like to read or you don't feel comfortable reading, you can listen to the Word of God, which is nearly just as good. Uh, You can do that while you're driving, while you're doing chores, and just listen and soak it in. I just want to be practical. How much should you read the Bible? Any is better than nothing. 
If it's only one verse for the day, that's better than nothing. They say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. I would say a scripture a day keeps the devil away, okay? And that's actually true, as cheesy as it is. Uh, So read it whenever you can. I don't think God minds if you read it in the bathroom. It's a holy book, right? But he's real. He just wants to have a relationship with you. So get it when you can. People ask, how much do I need to read at a time? Well, if you read a chapter a day, you'll read through the whole Bible in three years, and you're welcome to go faster if you want. If you think about it by time, if you read it for 15 minutes a day with an average reading speed, you'll get through the whole thing in eight months. So you can do the math. You could double that, get through in four months. You could do it in 10 minutes and get through in a year. But it's not that hard if you just make it a regular part of your life. In Job 23, verse 11 and 12, it says, For I have stayed on God's paths. I have not departed from his commands, but have treasured his words more than daily food. Some of us do a really good job feeding our physical bodies, but we don't do a good job feeding our spirits spiritual food. Have you ever met someone who is an anorexic? This eating disorder that says there's something wrong and so I shouldn't eat food. And they just, they deny themselves physical food thinking that they don't look right or they're not okay. And then their body becomes weak, their muscles become small, their bones become brittle, all because of this unhealthy way of thinking. Well, I want to just lovingly propose that there might be some people in our church who are spiritually anorexic, who aren't feeding their spirit spiritual food. And they developed, because of that, an unhealthy way of thinking, which leads to them being spiritually weak and spiritually fragile. This book is spiritual nourishment for your soul that makes you strong and healthy, and you need to eat it on a regular basis. Like, I recommend every day. So to give you a visual of how your soul craves the Word of God, I want you to check out this video of Chinese Christians in an underground church getting their first Bible they've ever received. Watch this video. Wow, you see them putting it up to their mouths and kissing it. So grateful to have the word of God. We sometimes take for granted how beneficial it is and how blessed we are that we all have access to the Bible, to the Word of God. Even just a couple of weeks ago, the Chinese government has limited the sale of Bibles through online retailers, again, trying to control the uprising of Christianity in their nation. We don't have that problem, but yet in many Christian homes, this book goes unread and collects dust. And because of that, Christians struggle That's not something I say to make you feel guilty, but I'm pointing that out because we unnecessarily struggle 
being uh, spiritually malnourished because we haven't fed our souls. But it says in Psalm 19, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. They are more desirable than gold. They are sweeter than honey. Your spirit needs this book. Here's the fourth thing. Learn from helpful sources. Learn from helpful sources. How do you read the Bible? Well, one of the things that will help you is to learn from helpful sources and consult other sources. The best source to help you understand the Bible is the Bible. (laughs) Isn't that great? As you read it, you'll understand more and more of it. So keep reading. Things that you didn't get the first time, later as you read more, you'll get more context and understand the things you didn't understand at first. It'll come back full circle. So keep going. This isn't like a novel where if you don't like it at first, you just put it down and give up. You keep going. And if you're wondering about something in Scripture, there's a great chance that another place in Scripture can explain the thing that you're struggling with. So the Bible is our source, and Scripture interprets Scripture. People ask, do I need to read the Old Testament? Only if you want to understand the Bible. Okay? There's this movement in some Christian circles that says, we don't need the Old Testament. We don't need that because we have the New Testament. New is better. Jesus makes the Old Testament unnecessary. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. The New Testament writers quote the Old Testament 855 times. So think of the whole Bible like a deep dish pizza. Okay? The Old Testament is like the crust. Without it, you have no foundation. You need the whole thing. You need all the ingredients, the crust and the sauce and the cheese and the toppings. Let's just call this thing off and go eat pizza. Right? What's the best way to eat anything? Right? You get a bite with all the layers. So you need all the layers of this book. The Old Testament provides foundation, and you'll see patterns in the Old Testament that connect with the New Testament. And together, it's amazing. It will blow your mind. One of the helpful sources you can consult is a trained pastor. So coming to church on a regular basis and listening to sermons will help you to read the Bible. And by that, I mean when we have a message, we read Scripture— We explain what we read in Scripture. We talk about the context of what we read. And then we'll talk about how to apply it to your lives. Just listening to a sermon teaches you how to read the Bible. So the more you hear, the more you'll uh, grow in understanding. And then um, I want to encourage you, a helpful source that I want to talk about is um, I would encourage you to get a study Bible. Okay, so this is my ESV study Bible. It's really big because there is a lot of information in it, okay? I want to show you a picture of the inside of my study Bible. What you'll see is that up at the top is Scripture, and then down below the bottom section has footnotes which give commentary and help explain the Scriptures above. There's all kinds of helpful information below maps, articles, and commentary. And when I started really reading the Bible, I would open it, I would read some scripture, and I would read the footnotes down below. And it took a little longer, but it was so much more helpful because I'd read scripture, and then I'd read the commentary, and it was like, oh, this makes so much more sense. Okay, now the commentary down below, we have to remember, is not the inspired word of God. It's commentary that comes from scholars who are doing their best to try to help you, help you, but they're not perfect, and something you read in the commentary could not 
possibly be accurate, although the word of God is perfect. Okay, so keep that in mind. But I want to kind of show you how to use these footnotes. And I'm going to kind of walk you through a passage and just kind of show you what it's like to read it and then read the footnotes. So I thought, let's just jump into one of the weirdest Old Testament passages. um, Top 10 weirdest, craziest Old Testament passages, I think, in Judges 11. There's this guy named Jephthah who is a judge who goes up to battle against the Ammonites. And it says in Judges 11, verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He said, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Okay, so I read this and already I have a bad feeling about where this is going. Okay, verse 34. Um, After he got, uh, he was victorious in battle, he returns home. It says this. When Jephthah returned home to Mizpah, his daughter came out to meet him and and playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his one and only child. He had no other sons or daughters. When he saw her, he tore his clothes in anguish. Oh, my daughter, he cried out. You have completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me. I have made a vow to the Lord and I cannot take it back. And she said, Father, if you have made a vow to the Lord, you must do what you have vowed. For the Lord has given you a great victory over your enemies, the Ammonites. But first, let me do this one thing. Let me go up and roam in the hills and weep with my friends for two months because I will die a virgin. When she returned home, her father kept the vow he had made and she died a virgin. What? (laughs) Like, you read this, and you're thinking, like, what did I just read, okay? What is this saying? It feels like this talk about child sacrifice, and, like, what is this? And there's a reason that a lot of people, they start reading Scripture. They come across a a strange or difficult-to-understand passage. They just throw their hands up, and they give up. And they either say, well, I can't understand this book. Or they say, the Bible has things and I can't believe. I, I don't know if I want to be a Christian anymore. But listen, if you'll do the work and you'll dig into this book, you can grow in understanding. So let's talk about what some of these footnotes say. The footnote for verse 31, where he says, whatever comes out of my house, I will sacrifice to the Lord. It says, human sacrifice was strictly forbidden in Israel. And then it gives you references where you can go look that up in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel. Yet Jephthah's foolishness impelled him to make such a vow and apparently follow through with this abomination. Okay, so I read this, and it makes me feel a little better right away. Like, okay, cool. So God is not okay with human sacrifice. And there's multiple verses I could go consult and confirm that fact. I'm starting to get the picture that maybe this guy Jephthah has made a foolish vow. He's not going to win judge of the month. He's not going to win dad of the month, okay? Let's read the next footnote from verse 35 where he says, I made this vow, I cannot take it back. It says, vows were solemn affairs made only to God. People were not forced to take them, but if they did, they had to be kept under normal circumstances. And it gives you some references to go look that up. Deuteronomy and Psalms and Ecclesiastes. But any vow that would end in sin was not binding. Keeping it could not please God. And the Levitical laws provided for such instances. You can go read about that in Leviticus 5, verses 4 through 6. Human sacrifice was an abomination, and Jephthah should not have followed through with killing his daughter. Okay, now I'm feeling better. Like, okay. 
this is starting to make a little more sense. Well, it's going to get even a little bit more clear here. Okay, we're going to read the footnote for verse 39. It says, her father kept the vow he had made, which is really concerning to me. All right, well, let's read about this. Most likely, it says, this means Jephthah literally sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering. However, another interpretation is that Jephthah dedicated his daughter to perpetual virginity as a figurative sacrifice. And it talks about how he mentioned her uniqueness and her virginity. This would have been a tragedy for her as she would bear no children, but it would also be tragic for Jephthah, whose line would come to an end. Some support for this comes from Jephthah's speech in verses 12 through 28, which we did not read, which shows that he has enough of a grasp of Israel's history that he might well have stopped short of literally sacrificing his own child. Okay, so the point is, it might not be what I thought it was when I first read it. I read these footnotes, and it gives me more understanding about what I'm reading. The Bible isn't telling me that I should kill my kids when they get on my nerves. Wasn't his daughter like the most reasonable and understanding daughter in the history of the world, by the way? (laughs) It's talking about what someone did, not what we should do. And it tells us that God's not okay with what he did. And it might not even be what I thought it was. There might still be parts of that passage that I don't totally understand, but I understand a lot more of it. And that's why having a study Bible can be helpful, okay? And and I want to encourage you to use one because as you read it, you'll consult it and you'll say, oh, I'm understanding this. So this is beneficial. The last point, how to read the Bible. Seek context, then seek application. The first question we should ask is, what did this mean to them? When you have a Bible study with your friends, you should not read the Bible and ask each other, so what does that mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to you, honestly. I don't even care. I want to know what it meant to them. That is what is important. So we should ask that first. We have to study the context of the surrounding verses and the passage that we read. Who is this talking to? Where did they live? What was the situation? And you can learn all those things. Consider the different types of literature. There was narrative and history and wisdom literature and poetry and letters. And you can learn about those differences in the videos I talked about, which you can find through the church app. Consider that scripture was written in a different time and in a different place. So we'll read about things and put it in the framework of our understanding as Americans living in 2019, but it was written to people who lived a long time ago in the ancient Middle East. So let me just give you one example. I heard someone say, hey, I'm not cool with the Bible because it condones slavery. And I was like, what are you talking about? Paul said, slaves obey your masters. Okay, well, it might not mean what you think it means. We think about slavery from our point of view as colonial slavery, which was racist, involved kidnapping, and kept people in lifelong bondage. All of those things the Bible says clearly is sinful. Slavery at the time that Paul wrote in ancient Rome was very different. In those days, they didn't have bankruptcy. So if you accumulated a lot of debt and couldn't pay it off, you could voluntarily place yourself into slavery. It was not allowed to last for more than seven to 10 years. And while you were a slave, you were paid a livable wage. Okay, so it's very different. The culture is different. We have to keep that in mind and that we have to watch that we don't let our cultural um, upbringing predispose us to resist God's word. 
Okay, so what I mean by that is if you grow up in this day and age, if you watch television today, if you go to school in the public school system today, you're going to hear a lot of things that you might then feel the Bible is not okay. Because what I've, what I've grown up hearing is different than what the Bible says. So like one example is sexuality. The world today talks about sexuality and just says, hey, whatever feels good, do it. Be who you are. But God lays out a path and a guideline for sexuality. So people will ask me like, well, Ryan, you know, the Bible is very old-fashioned and closed-minded and outdated. You need to get with the times. You need to get on the right side of history. If you want to be on the right side of history, get on God's side. Okay, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So if someone asks me, like, hey, what do you think about this sexuality issue? I'll tell them, hey, what I think doesn't really matter, but I can tell you what God's word says, and that's what matters. And his word is eternal, it's trustworthy. So first ask, what did this mean to them? Then, what does it mean to me? That's where you apply it to your life and you take lessons away. Even our crazy passage on Jephthah, I'm learning some lessons. Like, I should be careful about making promises that I don't want to have to keep. That's a little bit of application that I can apply to my life, okay? So sermons are always going to be filled with application as we read Scripture and then apply it to your life. But all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, Paul says to Timothy. Some parts are just more useful than others. So you might read some passages and say, I don't really know how this applies to my life. And that's okay. There there might not be a lot of application to your life in the book of Leviticus. But it's still helpful to teach you information that helps you understand God and his plan. Remember as you read the Bible, this book is not primarily about you. It is primarily about Jesus Christ. We need to keep that in mind that all scripture from the very beginning to the very end reads towards Jesus. It reads toward the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And theologians talk about the scarlet thread that is woven throughout the narrative of scripture. This scarlet thread, Old Testament throughout the New Testament, that ultimately leads us back to Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. All of the Bible is about him. As you read the Bible, ask yourself, What does this say about Jesus? Maybe there's nothing in the words, but I start to see connections when I ask myself, how does this lead me to Jesus? Even weird passages like the one we read about Jephthah. You remember him? How could I ever forget? He's crazy. (laughs) Remember Jephthah, right? How he, he was willing to sacrifice his daughter when he made this vow that if God gave him victory in battle, he would do this thing. And, And then he came home and there was this tragedy. And I read that. As weird as it is, and I see Jesus in that passage, and I think about how God the Father was willing to sacrifice his only son and how tragic and heartbreaking that would have been for him. And he did it to redeem his enemies rather than destroy his enemies. He wanted to redeem us, his enemies, into his family. He made this vow, and he does not regret his vow. He keeps it that whoever places their faith in Jesus will have eternal life, not death, like that passage describes. I read this Old Testament weird passage, and I see Jesus. And that is what Scripture does. It leads us to Jesus. So we'll close with this. How does this book, written over a 1,600-year period from beginning to end, 
penned by 40 different authors, tell one continuous story. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16? It said, all scripture is God-breathed. God breathed life into scripture the way that he breathed life into Adam. So there are 40 different men who penned the Bible, but there is one author, God. These different writers, who I like to call ghost writers, holy ghost writers, (laughs) pastor jokes, they were inspired by God. They were telling one story about how we could be led from death to life. Second Peter chapter 1 says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. This book tells the greatest story that's ever been told, how we can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I'm not trying to encourage you to read this Bible so you'll feel good about yourself. I'm encouraging you to read it so that your life will be good. Because there's goodness in Jesus that you can't find anywhere else. And what this Bible tells us is that in it leads to success. There's wisdom and, and knowledge and truth that leads us to success and blessing in our lives. In Psalm 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You, you cannot read this book. You don't have to. But you'll stumble around in darkness. You could even become a Christian and accept Jesus. But if you don't read this book, you're going to wander through life like you have one eye covered. You'll be constantly bumping into stuff and stubbing your toe spiritually, hurting yourself because you don't see clearly. But this book is a light to your path. It shows you the way, God's way. Galatians 3.24 says, The law became our guardian to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So God doesn't want you to read this book so that you'll gain information. He wants you to experience transformation. He wants you to find Jesus and experience new life in Jesus. I'm praying that our church will go into a whole new season of craving the word of God that will read it and apply it to our lives like never before. And if we do that, God will do things through this church and in your life that you never thought possible. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, we thank you for your word. That's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray that you would put inside of us a new hunger and craving for the word of God, that we would desire to consume it for the benefit of our souls. I pray that your people, Lord, would hunger after you and search the pages of scripture looking for you, Lord. You said that if we follow after you, if we pursue you, we'll find you. So God, I pray that we'll have peace and hope and that this comes through Jesus alone as we discover more about him, as we learn about him. I know that we're going to experience your goodness in our lives in even greater ways. We thank you for your word. We don't take it for granted. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. God bless you.